Glad to be here. It's a good day. It's a good day to be here in the house of God. Um, before we start, um, I just wanted to bring um, your attention just with a couple of announcements. You can look in your bulletin. I won't go over all of them, but right after service, we have a uh, we have a big sort of planning meeting lunch, and uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, you can see the announcement there. If you've got any food, run to the store and get some and bring it back. We'll let you, uh, let you join us, and uh, we're going to be planning more of what's going to happen. The details about that uh, weekend, August 9th and 10th, and as a church, we're going to go out and we're going to serve our community over that weekend. Part of what we're doing in the back, we saw those um, old uh, watchdogs back there. We're collecting quarters. Um, part of what we're doing on that day, on Saturday of the big tour, is that we're going to take one of our teams is going to go down to the laundry mat and we're going to wash people's clothes for free. And uh, so you can see that the, the little, again, the little tub in the back, it's actually two big tubs. And put your quarters in, bring quarters from home, you have those laying around. We're going to collect quarters over the next few weeks in preparation for that. So our kids being involved with that would be great. So again, the meeting right afterwards. Um, Sandhill Lake Campers, uh, you can see the down payment uh, is due for the high campers. And Taylor is going to actually have a short meeting with campers and parents right in the care room over here, immediately following the service. So it's only take about 10 minutes or so, 10, 15 minutes. It's an informational meeting you can meet with them. Um, this Wednesday, uh, we're going to have a first impression. You might wonder what that is. First impressions ministry. We're going to be launching this fall a first impressions team. Um, we've had leaders. Leaders are just going to be a part of the first impression team. We want to have people at the door welcoming people. If it's raining, we want people with umbrellas. We want to just love people and serve people as they come. And, uh, and, 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 and they, they've chosen to come here and worship the Lord here. And so we want to be a part of blessing them. We're going to be putting out as the weather holds up, maybe waivers out by the road just to wave at people and maybe call us weird or whatever. But it's always fun to do that. We, we did that a while back. And, it was just so much fun. Some people looked at us like we were very strange. Some people, I, I had actually compliments on them. They said that, that really was really cool and bright in their day. And so, um, I don't know, it's just because we look weird and they laughed uh, or whatever. But, uh, and so we're going to be launching a new first impression of the ministry team this fall. And so this Wednesday at 7, if you want to be a part of that in any way, shape, or form, we encourage you to come out and we're going to have a meeting again this Wednesday. It should only last about an hour. We want to talk to you about kind of what we're thinking in the fall. So, I think that's it. Let's pray. Let's get into the words today. God, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that you are victorious. That we prefer that song playing. Jesus, you are alive and well, and we want our eyes to be fixed on you today. We want to gaze at Jesus. We want to look at you. We want to lift you up. We want to thank you that you are a wonderful Savior. Lord, we want our hearts to be touched by you, God. Thank you, Lord, for the questions that came forth from from your people. And Lord, as we look at your word, thank you that your word is alive, it's rich, and it has answers to us, and it points us always to you. So, Lord, today again, as we go through these next set of questions, I pray that Jesus would be seen, the word of God would be lifted up. And the Holy Spirit you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we continue in our series. We have again we have a lot of great questions. If you are 
uh, visiting with us this morning, what we did was we uh, just collected a bunch of questions in the month of June from you guys. And so you guys submitted a bunch of questions, and we will be jumping into the next step uh, in just a, a, a few moments. We did last week. If your question, you know, you might be wondering, is my is going to deal with my question today? I don't know. We'll see. In this group. Um, Athena's going to join me in the next week and the week after that for the final two weeks. And uh, I will not be giving away what questions we're going to be going over. If you weren't here and we didn't dealt with your questions, you'll have to go online and listen to that and, uh, and, and, and hear that. But uh, we're going to keep it kind of a mystery. And so you'll have to come and see. And so I want to reiterate what I said last week as we were launching into this kind of as the beginning of this series was that we are going to be looking at these questions from a biblical perspective, a biblical point of view, kind of the lens from Scripture. It doesn't do you any good or me any good if we're just up here kind of giving you our own opinion. Um, that's not what, what is intended to happen. I think that that's where we get ourselves into a lot of trouble um, and I think that that is why sometimes, and even, you know, you see it happen many, many years ago with the, the silver bowl, but it can also be our stumbling block, too, is when we, we stand over Scripture and we say we will define what Scripture means instead of Scripture being over us. Scripture is God-breathed. It is, it is from the, 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 the very heart of God. The Bible says it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is, it is the standard, it is the foundation of truth. You and I are not the foundation of truth. We don't come up with truth. That's why we have not plummeted the depths of God's knowledge. We are to humble ourselves before Him and say, God, what does your word say? Because I believe His word points us to truth. Jesus is saying for Pilate. I mentioned this last week. And what did he say on Pilate? Pilate is, uh, he's about to go to his crucifixion. And Pilate is having this exchange with Jesus. And he says, For this reason I was born and came into the world, that I might testify of the truth. And Pilate asked that question, I think, that, that haunts everyone. What is truth? I just wish Jesus would have kind of like a Clint Eastwood. I know he's just very humble, but I just kind of have this kind of imaginary Clint Eastwood going, I am we got to be cool. Okay, maybe not. He was too, he was too humble for that. That's, you know, I mean, he did things way differently. He did me. But, he, you know, what is truth? And Jesus, I, you know, I think, without saying anything, you're looking at truth. I am the truth. The words I say are truth. That's why he is the truth bearer and we are not. We are to humble ourselves before him every single day. And so, uh, as we go into this and we deal with these questions, we're going to come from a biblical perspective. We're going to, um, I believe, with the Word of God, we deal with Jesus, and His application is intended to make us like Him. We have to be more Christ-like to become more like Jesus every day. That's the intention of Scripture. It's not just a manual for good behavior. It's a manual to say, to, to say we need Christ, we are broken without Him, and it is a it, it, it is the God is the standard to make us more like Him. The Word and then the power and the work, the impartation of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And so everything we deal with in life can be found in its pages. If it is open to whatever interpretations we come up with, then where do we find truth? Where do we find the standard? 
then there's a million different standards and truths out there, and then there is none, right? And so we don't get to choose what standard we want. And then we can think, well, you know, this book, is it, is it, is it antiquated? Is it, you know, it was written 2,000 years ago? Um, you know, some people have said, well, it's, you know, it's written by men, so therefore it's flawed. And I'm thinking, would God in His wisdom, would He just leave us to our, our own devices? Didn't He foresee that that might be an argument and that, that we can, we can base our, bank our life that He is still true Two thousand years, the things that were written are still applicable today. Now, we did say that there are these things called ceremonial law that we're not under today, and you can maneuver through that in Scripture. Well, you know, we don't do that anymore. But life law has not changed, and that's what we adhere to. And so, it was written by men under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, I want to just kind of build that before we get into the question. So, here were here were the questions. All right, here's uh, question number one for today. Is everything pre-planned by God? Great question, huh? Now, again, I am not here, I'm not going to be doing an exhaustive study on predestination and foreknowledge, those words that you see in Scripture. You know, you could take you could take this question. You could probably do a month of sermons on it. So this is not intended to be an exhaustive um, answer to all these questions. My hope is that it provokes you to go back to scripture yourself and to study, humble yourself before the Holy Spirit, and and say, Lord, teach me. And so we're not going to get into exhaustive stuff, but we're we are going to kind of do an overview of some of these questions. So this question is a theological question that has been talked about debated, thought about a lot. I, I remember you know, I remember getting into discussions and debates and stuff when I was in college about this very thing. Pre-plan, uh, predestination and foreknowledge. Did God pre-plan everything that was going to happen? And so, as we look at this, first of all, I don't know what went on in the planning phase of everything. Neither did you. Neither did anyone that has ever lived upon the earth. God, it started out with God, it will end with God. And so I wasn't there in the planning phase, but I do know this, that God is sovereign over everything. He did foreknow everything that was going to happen. And so foreknowledge is something in Scripture. He does know everything that's going to happen. And everything that happens has to pass through His hands. We looked at Job, we talked a little bit about suffering. Now, did God make Job suffer? But no, He did not. He didn't cause it, but He allowed it to pass through His hands. And so, we see that and we can say, well, does God seem cruel? No, to call God cruel is, again, again the, the biggest mistake we make is we bring God down to a human level of reasoning. That's why when people say, well, you know, when, when, they, when the Bible says God is a jealous God, well, I don't know if I can serve a God that says he's jealous. His jealousy is nothing like human, you know, emotionally unstable jealousy. His jealousy is holy and it's righteous because he wants us for himself because he loves us deeply. Do not begin at a place, and that's why the greatest place in our, as, a, as a follower of Christ is when, when you're searching truth, is to humble yourself before God. He is not like us. 
His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Way farther. Huge. Big. As Judah said. Big. Big He's nothing like us. He thinks nothing like us. But he does know that things are made past in his hands. I don't believe he planned sin to end up planning. No, he doesn't plan sin because there's no sin in him. But I do believe this. He knew sin was coming, and he's bigger than sin, and his plan of salvation and redemption included the defeat of sin, hell, and death. That's why, at the very beginning, one of the greatest gifts that he gives humanity is free will. And where does free will and predestination begin and end? No one will ever know. That's why there's debates and there's a hundred million different opinions about it. Because God is bigger than us. But God didn't just create a bunch of robots to make us serve Him. I would just make a bunch of minions that will just worship me. No, He... Out of the, out of, he gave us a free will out of our heart that we we choose to love him and to receive his gift of salvation. So he didn't plan sin, but he knew it was coming, and therefore his his plan of salvation and redemption included the the defeat of sin, hell, and death for all of us to give us eternity with him. And so he is sovereign. What does that word sovereign mean? Sovereign in the dictionary is linked to words and phrases like superior. Greatest, supreme in power and authority, ruler, independent of all others. Isn't that a good word? Independent of all others. And so when you hear sovereign, God is in complete and total control. He doesn't lose control. He doesn't get up in the morning and have to have a cup of coffee because he's nervous and he's got to figure out what's going to happen today. The Middle East stuff is not causing him to pace the floor going, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. He's in control. And because of that fact, I don't know about you, but the sovereignty of God gives me great peace to know that even in the midst of chaos and confusion, there is one who is in control. Even though it might seem that things in our sphere are not in control, they seem chaotic. But it gives me great confidence and peace. Know that no matter what's going on, he's in control. And so there's nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and his authority. As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God has no limitations. And here are a few claims the Bible makes about God as far as does he know what's going on and, and his sovereignty and the planning of everything. Revelation 21.6, God is above all things. And again, I want you to grab hold of it and let, this, let these verses, that, let them wash over you to bring you to a place of humility of who He is and who Jesus is. But God is above all things and before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal and He is present everywhere so that everyone can know Him. Colossians 1.16, this discourse by Paul about the supremacy of Christ, and he said God created all things and holds all things together, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. This is the God that we serve. 
Romans 11.33, God knows all things past, present, and future. There is no limit to his knowledge for God knows everything completely before it even happens. And then another one from the Old Testament. I'm a little ahead of myself here. Technology, isn't it wonderful? Wait, you're seeing the next question. Don't look. Just talk among yourselves. It's okay. Give you a topic. The sovereignty of God. Go. I love how when you pre-plan this, I practiced this last night, and it worked without a pitch. I promise you it did. But then everybody was mad at me. You know, maybe. It did work, I promise. Hey, there we go. Jeremiah 32. 17. God can do all things and accomplish all things. Nothing is too difficult for him. And he orchestrates and determines everything that's going to happen in your life and in my life. God is in control of all things and he rules over all things. He has power and authority over nature, earthly kings, history, angels, and demons. Everything is under his control. So then the logical follow-up to that would be, well, then case the roster on, right? Whatever will be, will be. We don't really, because a lot of people, and I, I've had this discussion, well, if that's true in the way you package it, well then, why pray? Why ask God? Why talk to God? And the simple answer to that is, you're not God, and you need God, and, you're, and His ways, again, are higher than our ways, but I'll get a little bit deeper than that. I like this, and, and, and this is from a quote from uh, author Sue Boland. She writes about God's sovereignty in prayer. Listen to this, it's very good. She says, prayer then is understood. She's dealing with this idea of free plan and should we pray. She says, prayer then is understood to be us aligning ourselves with God. Prayer isn't mainly about telling God what we want so He can give us our heart's desire. It is supposed to be about submitting to His will even as we share our desires with Him. With the understanding that he, if He wants something different and better than what we want, we acknowledge that He has the right to do whatever He wants because He is God and we aren't. She goes on to say, we pray to communicate with God because communication is an absolutely essential part of maintaining a relationship. It's about a relationship with God. It's about a relationship with God. She says, and Christianity is about relationship with God, not rules and rituals. We pray because we are and can do nothing without God, and we need Him desperately. We pray because it reminds us that we are completely dependent on God. If you read the prayers of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you see that he didn't spend a lot of time praying for, the things, for things to go a certain way. It's really important for us to understand this. He certainly prayed about his hopes and his intentions, such as his desires to go into Asia to preach the gospel. But the Holy Spirit told him no, which he humbly accepted. That's from Acts 16. Because he lived his life in an attitude of submission and obedience. 
She says, I think the wisest course of action is to lift events and concerns into God's hands, telling Him what we would like, and then yielding to Him about the whole thing. Which is the pattern we see modeled by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He died. He poured out His heart to the Father, asking Him if there was any way to escape the cup of suffering before Him, but yielding by saying, Yet not my will, but yours be done. I think that cultivating an attitude of your will be done is the most important part of prayer. So we pray not to get what we want out of God like some cosmic vending machine, but to keep us connected to and dependent on Him, which is what we were created for in the Isn't that great? The reason why I quoted that was so much better than anything I could come up with. That was really good. And so we're given free will, but God in His foreknowledge knows what's going to happen. And so this didn't bring us frustration. It shouldn't bring us to a place of whatever will be, will be, but great confidence and trust in Him. And I think the ultimate passage that we find in this whole realm is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. And that is a great passage, except it's hard to sometimes live out, isn't it? But here's the thing about Romans 8.28. It's not just an earthly promise. It's an eternal promise. Promise. That's what we got to understand from Scripture. Is a lot of times we think promises are just limited to the earth. And that's why Paul says, you know, we set our heart and our mind on things above. We think, we think about eternally. This is just a, this is a very small part of your life. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, I think I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating here, is uh, Francis Chan, who, he did this message one time, and he brings out this rope, and you can't see the end of it. Have you guys ever seen this illustration? I wish I had a rope. It's really cool. But and he pulls out this rope, and he's talking about this rope, and you can't see the end. And they, and they, these guys are helping him pull it, and they have this rope just all up on stage, and you still can't see the end of it. And on the end of the rope, he has this like painted red. It's about maybe five inches, four or five inches painted red. And so he's holding this rope and he's talking about our lives. And he says, ultimately, he says, this four inches of red represent our life on the earth. The rest of the rope is the rest of our lives. Because we're going to be alive in 20,000 years. And he said, and we put so much hope, so much trust, so many expectations, and we hold on to that four inches of red desperately and cling to it so tightly, and yes, it's important, and there's a part of our life, but when we die from this earth, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. To see with eyes with eternity, and I know all things work together for good, that's an eternal bomb. Some things don't make sense, they won't make sense. Don't let that push you away from God. Well, this season in my life, this unanswered prayer, this is so hard, and if God knew it, it seems cruel. No, submit yourself to God. Trust that He's in control because He can take anything and move it for your good when you love Him. And here's the thing, and it might not be in this life. You might not see it in this life. And we have to be okay with that. Because we're going to stand before Him one day and we're going to give an account. But we may not see it in this life, but He can redeem anything. And a life lived in Jesus. We see this a life lived in Jesus. Nothing is chaos, nothing is random, nothing is, is it, it, nothing is just like whatever. 
It's not random chaos. There's intentionality. That's why Joseph, when he went through horrific years, he was able to look at his brothers and say, all those horrific years where God's been absent, I've been alone, I was in prison, I was falsely accused. And he didn't look at those years and say, look at what you guys, look at all the wasted time that you gave me. Look at what you did to me. He said, here's, what, here's his words. And he's basically living out Romans 8, 28, thousands of years before Romans 8, 28. He was saying, God lived this off of it. Why does he have that perspective? Because he has an eternal perspective. God meant it for good. God is sovereign and he knows all things. But let that be bring you to a place of great peace. Question two, it's a kind of a two-parter. Do you believe the possibility of evolution by design? What about fossil and carbon dating? Anybody wrestled with this one? It's a good question. Do you believe the possibility of evolution by design? Or, and then what about fossil and carbon dating? First, what is evolution by design? Um, because that's one of the things they've learned out there. You know, there, there, are, there are some people that obviously have Darwinian evolution. That's what they teach taught in schools. It's, um, I'll get into that in a moment. There are some that are adhering to this that evolution by design is God or some intelligent designer. I'm just giving you the defini- definition of evolution by design. God or some intelligent designer started things. They caused the Big Bang or whatever it is. They, 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 there was a starting point. They created the starting point. And then evolution took over. And then the billions of years. So you still have evolution, but you just have the starting place of a, of a, of a creator or an an intelligent design. Okay, biblically, I don't believe the Bible gives room for evolution by design. Next question. No, I'm just kidding. I'll do a little more. I do believe in microevolution, but not macroevolution. What's the difference? The difference is macroevolution, that's Darwinian evolution. It says that all life began at, you know, they have this single living cell. All life began from that, and that through billions and billions of years, all living things came to be. So Marco has these big leaps. You know what I'm saying? That there is an intermediate species that we basically have evolved and, you know, primates, and you keep going back, and that all living things have one common ancestor. That's macroevolution. Um, I, I, that's just, the, the massive problem is this. There's never been any evidence that supports this. That's why it's still a theory. Now, they teach it as it's true, but it's a theory. I mean, if you grill people, and uh, if you've ever seen, uh, if you've ever seen the documentary that Ben Stein did, um, uh, he, he questions Richard Dawkins, foremost atheist evolutionist, and he gets them to that question about that, that, that all, right, all life began as a single living cell. Well, where did that come from? You know, that's just the logical question that you have. Well, where did that come from? He finally, when you back him into enough back, 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 he says this, there's no way we can possibly know. And we're like, thank you. Now it's safe, just like us. Let's call it what it is. So there's, there's, there's this massive problem. Even Darwin himself, if you look at Darwin said that the theory would be proven or disproven by the fossil record. 
that you have intermediate species and lots of them. And guess what? Hasn't happened. I do believe in microevolution. What does that mean? It's small changes in adaptations of living things. It's like moving to Minnesota and you go from shorts to a coat. We we moved from Florida to Minnesota, and that was like microevolution. The further we drove up, it was March of '97, the year of the floods, and I had shorts on. It was 85 degrees, and we visited the beach in the west as we left. And we get into Iowa, and there is snow, like lots of snow. And then we get more and more in the north, and there's tons of snow. And we get into Montevideo, and it looks like we have landed on another planet of snow. Microevolution. Storage to winter coats. Um, microevolution is just, it, 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 that, that you just see that in species, that there are small changes, adaptations over time. And I think that the biblical account gives that and, 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 and defends that. Listen to this, Genesis 1, 24. Again, let's go back to the Bible if you don't need my opinion for it. Then God said, it's real important, I love Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God. It all begins with Him. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its what? That's a tough word there, kind. You have, to, you have to dismiss the Bible completely. It's to its kind. Cattle and, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. Thank you. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its cattle, according to its and everything that creeps in the earth according to it. And God called it was good. And that word kind, over and over. In other words, you can take the, the, the dogs that we have. Dogs do have a common ancestor. There's a canine. That's the reason why Noah could get the animals into the ark. It wasn't like two chihuahuas and two great danes. And, you know, uh, and he, you know people go, well, he couldn't get up. Yes, he can. They have common ancestors. It's dogs. Canine. And through adaptation and God's sense of humor, you have stuff like chihuahuas. And then the greatest oversight in the kingdom is we have cats. Dog people love that when cats people are like, you wait. You wait. Common ancestry. That's the biblical account that they all go back to a common ancestor of, of that time. And that's why the Genesis account, according to its time. And so now what we see is those adaptations. I believe that God is the creator and designer of all life. Darwinian evolution, like creation, takes faith. And so it's, it, it is a faith based thing. Again, I talked about Dawkins, and, and, and they say that there's no way to know where those two, those, those two living cells that when you go back far enough, there, there's no way to know. Now, getting into fossil records, carbon dating, or the age of the Earth, now this is kind of almost a separate issue, and it's a, it's a separate thing that's heavily debated, and again, I don't have a lot of time to dive into it. There are strong Christian theologians on both sides of this issue. And they would consider like old earth versus new earth. You've heard of that before? 
like new earth creation. Now, now, they all have in common that God is the creator, he's the designer, and they would agree with everything that we just said. And then, then it comes to the point of the age of the earth, the age of things. And so new earth people believe that the, the earth is about, you know, seven to 10,000 years old. There are some theologians, Christians, again, believe God's creator. They believe that the earth is, could be millions of years old. They don't, they don't believe in evolution like we, that we talked about. They just believe in the age. And we talk about fossil records of carbon dating. And so, not to confuse, they're not talking about evolution. They're just talking about the age of the earth. And so then, how reliable is carbon dating? It is somewhat reliable. So, you know, I'm not going to just say it's completely unreliable. But in my, in my studies, I, and I went to secular uh, scientific uh, articles about this. I didn't just read, well, what did that Christian guy say about this? I wanted to read what was said about carbon dating. And it has been known to have flaws. Now, it's not completely, you know, you don't completely just throw it completely out. That carbon dating was only reliable up to a certain amount of years. And a lot of scientists will say this. In one article I read, it says that they are trying to improve how they do carbon dating because of some of the problems that they've had with it. And so they've seen some inconsistencies about aging things. And again, there are some scientists that just put all of their stock in it, but I'm, think, I'm thinking from a, an integrity point of view and a scientific point of view, you need to say, all right, if it's got flaws, let's take a step back. Again, not that it's, they, they, they've been able to, in testing, they've taken things that they've known the age of, you know, like, you know, a couple thousand years old, and then they do the same process, and it comes out to a couple thousand years old. So it's not completely, you don't completely throw it out, but it's known to have flaws. And so there's been conflicts in it, even within the science community. And so, I would say this, when you're, when you're talking about billions of years old versus thousands of years old, I'm not even, and, and, and you might disagree with me, I'm not even sure that that is the kind of debate that we need to get that heated in the discussion that we, we need to get that heated. In the beginning, let's go back to the Bible, in the beginning, um, God began to form things, and it says the earth was without form and void, but it was, there was something here, there was something there. Right? Because the, the, the earth was without form and void. So it's a possibility that before God spoke light and there began to be living things and the, and the creative order of things, there could be what we know as earth could have been here a long, long time ago. And there could be certain things, dating certain things, rock formations that could be very, very, very old. I'm not, and I'm, but I'm not, I'm not so sure that that is even something that we get that excited about or debate that heavily. Again, we can agree to disagree. I love you if you disagree with me. It could be very old, maybe not. But here's the thing. Let's, let's boil it back down to what we're talking about. God is the creator. He is the designer. He spoke and the world came into existence. He spoke living things into existence. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He created him in his own likeness. And so God is the creator. And this passage from John. In the beginning, and this almost John 1 starts out almost in Genesis 1, talking about Christ being a part of creation. In the beginning, 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made, that has been made. In Him was life, and the life is the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. God created. He is the Creator. He is the Designer. And so that's where I'll leave that. Question three. Why make the universe so large? As we're talking about creation, why make the universe so large with all its galaxies and planets? Great question, huh? Why make it so big? You know, they, they have now, they're now discovering stars and planets that um, Louis Giglio did something a few years ago and he, in, 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 in correlation to the Earth, he took a golf ball. He said they're finding, they're finding stars and planets now that if Earth was the size of a golf ball, they found some the size of Mount Everest in comparison to a golf ball. That's big. Why make the Earth, why make the universe so big with all these galaxies and planets? I believe biblically it reveals to us the bigness of God. His awesomeness. The, the Bible says He measures the universe by the breadth of His hands. It's the largeness of God. Listen to some of these passages. Psalm 147. Okay. Years ago, when they first started discovering stars, they only thought there were like 120 of them because that was all they could see. And as they've gone, now they, they said it's vast. Here's the God we serve. He counts the numbers of the stars and He calls them all by name. Scientists, you don't need a name. God's already got the name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. That's the God we serve. And so the psalmist is saying, when I look and I see, and it's, it's the hugeness of God. He names the stars. He's huge. His, his splendor and majesty are unmatched. And it also reveals His glory. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. It says everywhere you look, the seat His work. When you gaze up in the stars at, at night, when you look at something that's majestic like that, and you think, whoa, this is God's handiwork. He made all that. Everything that God, that God made, be it you, me, wildlife, angels, stars, planets, are created for His glory. When we see the breathtaking view of the Milky Way appear at Saturn through a telescope, we're amazed at the wonders of God. Nature and creation stuff points to Him and His handiwork. Psalm wrote, uh, in, 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 in Psalm 8, David wrote this. Because here's the point of this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So what's the point? It reveals the glory. It reveals his bigness. But it also reveals how small we are. You hear David's humility there? All of our heart, the greatest approach to God is humility. Here's the king, David, who is pretty powerful. He said, you know, I look around and I'm not that big. Here's what it should be. The bigness of God and the smallness of us. In spite of what your kids think, they are not the center of the universe. God is. But here's the cool thing about all of this. 
what David has written. He's huge and he's awesome, but he's intimately acquainted with us. He loves us. When we tie the two together, it's awesome and it's glorious. And he's big and he's huge, yet he loves us individually and intimately. That's what David's saying. He says, I see the bigness of you. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? That blows me away that you are even thinking about me, but yet you think about me intimately and individually. Because he's big, but he can keep track of all of us. So this is revealed through Christ and what he did for us. God didn't and he doesn't need us. He chooses us and loves us. Isn't that incredible? That's why he makes the universe so big. Question four is too far. I'm going to go through this quickly, and then we're going to finish with the last question. Has there been any other religion in history like Christianity? What makes Christianity the true religion? There are some who try to denounce, maybe you've read it, maybe this could be foreign to you, but there are some who try to denounce Christianity as a myth among other myths based on mythological stories that seem to parallel the story of Jesus. There are stories out there. Mythological gods, Horus and Mithras, are two examples. And some cite these two examples as that proof that Christianity isn't real because there's so much alike. Supposedly, Horus, in the story of Horus, he was born on December 25th of a virgin. His mother was Isis, who was like Mary. A star in the east proclaimed his arrival. Three kings came to adore this savior. He became a child prodigy teacher at the age of 12. At age 30, he was baptized and began ministry. Horus had 12 disciples. Horus was betrayed. He was crucified. He was buried for three days. He was resurrected after three days. There are similar claims to the god Mithras. And so these are intended to make Christianity not unique, but just one of many myths. And that would be some that say, well, it's, like, it's so much like Christianity, it's like one myth among many myths. However, upon further investigation, these claims are completely fabricated and untrue. You can go do the research for yourself. I've done it. They're actually untrue. There are no accounts that either of these stories line up with their claims. But people grab mythological stories, and here's the problem when I compare myth to reality, and I blur those lines. Some people are just looking for a reason to doubt. Here's from Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ. He said, more examples can be given of Krishna, Addis, Dionysus, and other mythological gods. But the result is the same. In the end, the historical Jesus portrayed in the Bible is unique. The alleged similarities of Jesus' story to pagan myths are greatly exaggerated. Further, while tales of Horus, Mithras, and others predate Christianity, there's very little historical record of the pre-Christian beliefs of those religions. And so, people make things up and they, they, they drive from, well, and through time, you give it enough time and you say it enough times, people begin to almost adhere to it as truth. That is why we need a standard of truth, the Word of God. If it's left up to our own interpretations, we're going to good luck with that. So what makes Christianity the true religion? Number one, the historical account. There is no denying that Jesus was here on the earth. I don't care who people are, atheists, evolutionists, people that don't believe in God, if they have any integrity about their 
historical study, they cannot deny that a man named Jesus Christ walked on the earth. That is a historical fact. There are things, there are, there are historical documents, Josephus being one of them who was a first century historian, that are outside biblical accounts. So you can just, you can take for a moment and remove the Bible. There are historical documents that say Jesus Christ walked on the earth. Josephus was one of them. And so, the historical account that he was here, Bill Maher, the famous comedian atheist, I mean, he, he knows that Jesus was on the earth. He doesn't believe about him what was said, but he does know that Jesus was here. And so, he, so historical integrity, he was here. Now what we have to do is, this, is what makes it true religion is his claims of himself. What did he claim of himself? He said that he's the Savior. He said that he's the light of the world. He said that he's the only way, truth, and life. He claimed to be God himself. And so he made all these bold claims, and there's many more. And so he's here, and he made claims about himself, about being God and being the Savior. What else? Then you have the resurrection. This is probably the greatest evidence of all because it validated his other claims. First Corinthians 15. Paul writes this. He said, now, brothers and sisters, and you got to understand, Paul is not writing this passage of Scripture in kind of almost like a, it, it's more of a, it's more of a factual thing to talk about. It's not always heart issues. I mean, he's getting at the heart, but he's almost getting this as a, almost a historical lesson. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By the gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. But what I received, I pass on to you as first importance. And then he gives a little, he said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, or they have died. In other words, he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He said, you know what? You can look these people up. Facebook them. They'll tell you. He's given, and, and so you have 500 people that saw him. Some had died and some are still alive. He said, you know, if you don't believe me, go and find one of them. They were there. And so you have this historical account. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. It's just the humility of Paul saying, you know, I didn't deserve this, but God came and Jesus showed himself to me. And so you have, historically, he was here, he made claims. He died, he was resurrected by accounts, visual accounts. That is enough for debate. So then it's this. What do you do with this Christ who was on the earth that made those claims? That's what gets at the heart of every human being on planet earth. What do you do with him? Because either he is who he said he is, or as C.S. Lewis wrote, he is a lunatic and a liar. Because he did make those points. And there was an empty tomb. And so it was a, either a great conspiracy and he was either a lunatic or a liar, or he really is who he said he is. And if he is who he said he is, we have to do something with Christ. And our decision has eternal implications. And so what will you do with Jesus? Last question. This is one of our kids submitted this. 
Why did Noah build the ark? Isn't that a great question? Let's go to the biblical account and find out. This is a great thing to point us to the redemption, and then we'll be done. Genesis 6. Here's the sovereign God of the universe. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. Let me stop right there. There's nothing new. This has been a this has been a, a, a cycle of human behavior throughout all history. God in his mercy gives us free will. What man does is he says, I don't need God. I remove God away from the throne of my own life. I reject God, and that's what they did back in the days of Noah. They were rejecting God. Later on, you see, um, you know, even when the, the earth is replenished with people, people were doing right, what was right in their own eyes. Um, the vast majority of the kings of Israel were more wicked than good um, because people just said, we reject God. This is a human condition to reject God instead of humbling ourselves before Him. And so the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. They've gotten really bad. Just, no, we don't need God. We don't need God. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, again, when you see that he, His heart was deeply troubled, don't immediately define that by how when your heart is deeply troubled. He's nothing like that. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Very important to remember that. Noah found favor in the eyes of the So humans, like today, were inclined to sinfulness. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. We are inclined to sinfulness. God created humans for a relationship to Himself. He created us the big God of the universe and loved them. He gives them free will to give, and they take that free will and they run from Him. They do things their own way instead of His way. But because of His love for us, He doesn't want us to simply live however we see fit. And so He lovingly gives us standards for our own good and for greater freedom. That is why God has standards. That is why He has a way to live. That's why He is the definer of how we live in every part of life. It's for our own good. And so God, God had Noah build an ark because He was going to destroy the world with a flood and the consequence of the people doing whatever that was right in their own eyes. But here's the mercy of God. We see glimpses of mercy. He didn't destroy everything. Noah found favor with God. And so God spared him and his family, and he had to build an ark to save his family and parts of the animal kingdom. What do we learn from this story? Again, I believe every part of Scripture points us to redemption and the reality of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is like a neon sign that points us to Jesus. What is Colossians 1? He is preeminent. He's above all things. It's all about Him. And so, this real story in the Old Testament points us to the greater reality of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of God's story of redemption. It really happened, but it's also a foreshadowing. In the story of Noah, humanity has become very wicked. They reject God and His ways, and they do whatever they feel like doing. God brings consequences for the actions 
yet save Noah and his family by having him build an ark of wood. See where I'm going with this? You see what's coming? The story of Jesus is the great eternal story of redemption. Humanity, us included, are still bent on doing things our own way, aren't we? What did Paul say in Romans 7? I'm in this battle. I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do things I know I should do. And he says, it's a, it's a war that's happening in me. Who can save me from this life? He says, thanks be to God, it's through Christ. And so we're born in the center. We tend to reject God's way. Instead of destroying the earth with a flood, because God said, I'll never do that again. God allowed another piece of wood to become our salvation. Instead of an ark, it was a cross. And it was not just for a select few, but it was for the entire world. And it was out of love for you and for me. And the only way now that we will endure judgment is to reject the sacrifice of Jesus and continue to live our own life. All of Scripture points to salvation in Christ. And so what will we do with that sacrifice? And here's what it says about Jesus. And I'll close with this. He had no one's family given that ark and he rained down, literally, rain and floods and he destroys the earth with a flood. And so you see a picture of God judging sin. And there was another time that God rained down judgment upon something on the earth. Now remember, he said, I won't destroy the earth again with a flood. But you see the prophetic word in Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus and it says that it was the Lord's good pleasure to trust Him and that He poured poured out on Jesus the judgment that we so richly deserve. He placed on Him the penalty for our iniquities. Your sin and my sin, He heaps upon Christ and upon the cross more than physical death. He heaps the sins of the world and the judgment of that sin upon Jesus. And Jesus endures it because He loves you and me. And now instead of calling Moses and his family to the salvation, He says, now salvation is for everyone. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, die, pay for their own sins, but would have life everlasting in Him. This story of knowing the ark points us to the reality of Jesus. What will you do with the sacrifice of Jesus? Will you continue to live your own way? Will you continue to call your own shots? To live life out from underneath the sacrifice and receiving the sacrifice? Because it's more, it's more than just, let me, let, me, let me be very clear. It's more than just saying, Jesus, thank you that you're my Savior. It's awesome and He is Savior. But then the follow-up question is, he cannot just say that being Savior, he must be Lord. And it goes back to the very beginning of this sermon when talking about sovereign and in control. Is he in control of your life? Do you allow him to call the shots? Do you define him what you will do? 
Do you make up your own rules for how you will obey and how you will do this, how you will work, how you will define certain things, marriage and children, and how we define, or will God do that? He is Lord. His Word is very clear. And we can live His way or our way. The choice is ours. So, yes, He's Savior. Yes, He's merciful. But is He Lord of your life? That's the important question. Is He Savior and Lord? Because He paid for us and He doesn't give us permission to continue to live in us. But that He's given us the power to live a life for Him. And when we blow it, that's what we do. We run to Him. We acknowledge and we humble ourselves and we say, God, forgive me. And He's there to forgive us every day. Our pride and our arrogance is to say, I don't need His forgiveness and I'll do that. Or we reject the conviction and we do things our way. Is He Savior and Lord? Let's stand together. God, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You that Your Word does not return void, that You have given it to us as a life, as a standard of truth, God, forgive me for the times that I have done things my own way and uh, and I've rejected you. Maybe decisions that I've made and things where I'm really glad you're my Savior, but the Lordship thing I struggle with. God, forgive me. But help us to understand your great love and your mercy. Lord, help us to to see you with new eyes today, that you are creator, that you are sovereign, that you are huge, yet you are very personal, that you created us for relationship with yourself, or that your creation and the stars and the planets declare the glory of God, and yet you love us intimately. Lord, there's no other like you, no matter what people might say, there is no one like you. You are unique. You stand alone. That's the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, that you pay the ultimate price that we would know you and live for you. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week, another set. I'm <laughs> going